morning. I'm grateful to open the Word of God with you this morning. I wanted to begin with a photograph that I'd like you just to kind of look into for a moment. To really look in and, and think about what you're seeing. At Pulpit Rock, we do believe these words. We believe that God wants to redeem every part of us. That he wants to restore the broken pieces of our lives. That that restoration with Jesus is more than a a one-time transaction, but it is an ongoing, never-ending restoring of our souls, our lives, and the world around us. So we believe these two words, trust Jesus. But what do they mean? What I've observed in our city is that so many of us are in desperate need of restoration in so many parts of our lives. Some of us realize it, some of us do not. Some of us think our broken pieces are easy to see, others not so much. Some of us find it very easy to say, well, well, I just trust Jesus with everything. Some of us laugh at that. Not really in a mocking way, but just because it's just so beyond our, our view. Some of us want to be healed, we want to be reassembled, and some of us don't even have any idea what that means. Trust Jesus. We've been uh, this fall uh, studying the story of Jesus Christ through the book of Mark. We're thinking about a question, a question that we believe is key in our quest for restoration. It is a question that Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Today what I want us to do is we're going to be looking at uh, these two stories today that are they're going to somehow intertwine where two people are going to be confronted with what it means for them to really answer this question, who do I say that he is and, and what does it mean that I trust him? I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 5, that's where we're going to be today. If you want to be in the exact translation that I'm using, we're, we're walking this fall uh, through the book of Mark but also using a study guide that some friends of ours in Knoxville wrote. I'm going to be on page 137 in our study guide if you wanted to kind of get in on that. If you don't have one of these, you can grab one at some point. We pick up the action in the middle of a scene and when Jesus, verse 21, crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd was gathered to him and he was by the sea and one of the synagogue rulers by the name of Jairus comes. And seeing him, Jairus falls to his feet. And he began begging him urgently, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and place your hands on her that she may be saved and live. Now, these are words on a screen or words in a book, but, but we can all see what's really happening here, right? We can see the agonized household, the distraught father, the, the feeling that hope is just slipping away. And then this family hears as they're, they're, they're aching over their daughter and, and who's dying. And they hear that, that, that this traveling rabbi, Jesus, he's in town. He's becoming very well known for all of his healings. Let's go. Jairus was a leader of the synagogue. He's kind of like one of our elders here. And I, I said that in the first service, and I, I mean that in a positive sense. Like, that's a good thing. But imagine if one of our elders, you, you, you saw him going into a mosque down the street, and, and, and they're going in there for help, and you're wondering, well, that's kind of confusing. Why would they be going to a mosque for help? That's the same kind of confusion that people would have here. Why is the leader of the synagogue falling at his feet in front of this traveling rabbi? 
At great personal cost, Jairus comes and kneels before Jesus, and it's just amazing how all those worries get pushed aside when it's your daughter. And he left with him, and the great crowd followed him and was pressing in upon him. Good, Jairus comes, falls at the feet, please come save my daughter, I am coming with you. And everyone's pressing in on him, everyone wanted to be close, what's about to happen? While we're in the middle of this story, there's another story that's been developing that we didn't even see coming, and it slams into us in verse 25. And a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years, and had endured much under many doctors and spent all that she had, and who did not improve but rather grew worse. And a woman. A woman who had what doctors would call a flux, an abnormal unending flow of blood. And this poor woman had not only suffered from the disease, but from the cures. See, there's a, a, a collection of writings called the Talmud, and they, were, uh, they contained civil and ceremonial laws. And they would say, well, you know, when this happens, you do this. When this happens, you do this. And it was just kind of this collection of, of writings and, 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 and ways of, of dealing with things. The Talmud had no less than 11 cures for the flux. One cure was to go and find some cattle dung and fish out a little piece of grain and then give it to the woman to eat. Another was to take three pints of Persian onions, boil them in wine, give it to her to drink and say, arise from thy flux. And if those didn't work, she was to go to an intersection in the town of two roads. She was to hold a cup of wine in her right hand. Someone was to come up to her from behind and frighten her and yell, Arise from thy flux! Makes the flu shot not seem so bad, right? <laughs> I was thinking about this, even in, in between services, Arise from thy flux. It's maybe a modern day version of, Get over it! Mark tells us what she's been through. Everything she's tried has gotten worse. She's broke, anemic, exhausted, and she's desperate. Now, we don't know her name, but later Greek tradition gave her this name, Berenice. So I'm going to call her Berenice for the take, sake of our time together, just so that she's a person to us. So Berenice, hearing the things about Jesus, came up from behind in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she was saying, if I touch his clothes, even his clothes, I will be saved. Question, how many of you have ever heard this story before? You, you know, maybe you know where this is going. Okay. I've always come to this point, I've always wondered this. Where did she get this idea? And I used to think that maybe she just was like, well, I just have so much faith. If I just touch his clothes, they have some kind of power, I'll, touch, I'll do that. And then I discovered this. Back in the Old Testament, God gave Moses this word. He said, Moses, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corner of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. Now, these were kind of like this, this thing that would go around your neck, and it would have these tassels on them, or they would put them on their garments. And, and the, these tassels were to represent the commands of God. And so the, the way is, is that when you would see this, you would be reminded visually, oh, yeah, I've always got to be remembering the commands of God. I've got to live for God and follow his ways. To this day, many Jewish leaders will wear a prayer shawl with tassels on it to honor this very thing. 
Now you fast forward to the last book of the Old Testament, and it, uh, the author is talking about, there. it's this last book, and he says, but there's coming a day when there's going to be a Messiah that's going to come and save us. And in this description in Malachi 4.2, he says this, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Son of Righteousness is referring to this Messiah that's going to come. And do you see the word wings? It's the same word used for the edge of the garment where the tassels would be attached. So a rumor got started. A legend sprung up. When the Messiah comes, uh, there's going to be special healing power in his wings, in his tassels of his prayer shawl. As an observant Jew, as a rabbi traveling around, Jesus would have been wearing one of these prayer shawls with the tassels at the four corners. Do you guys see where this is going? Right? So the rumor was when the Messiah comes, he's going to have this. It's very possible that Berenice believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And she has come to this rabbi to touch the edge of his garment to get the healing in its wings. Immediately, her source of blood dried up. She knew in her body that she was cured of the disease. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself the power that went out from him. What in the world does that mean? I have no idea. I have no, that, that is a puzzlement to me today. That, it's just amazing that Jesus, like, he knew that power had gone out from him. Wow. He turned around in the crowd. He said, who touched my clothes? His student said to him, uh, you see the crowd, right? They're pressing in on you. We've already made that clear. You, yet you say, who touched me? And he began looking around to see the one who did this. Who touched me? I imagine Jairus standing there, and you know, he's, he's finally got some momentum. Something's about to happen for his daughter. I just imagine him going, I, I don't know, Jesus, who touched you, but remember, my daughter, my daughter, she's dying right now. We need to get there. Let's go. Jesus stops, trying to find out who touched him in a mob of people. A friend of mine calls this malpractice. The woman with a chronic condition is getting the attention instead of a little girl with an acute condition. Jesus is choosing to stop and talk with a woman who has just been healed while a girl lies dying. My friend says if these two were in the same emergency room, Any doctor who treated the woman first and let that girl die would be sued, thrown out. Jairus and the disciples are, come on, Jesus, don't you understand the situation? This girl needs help now. Hurry, Jesus, hurry. But Jesus will not be hurried. I want to meet the person who touched me. But the woman, afraid and trembling, Knowing what happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, we've seen this before in Mark, that that certain people, because of things that were happening in their life, were considered outside the community. They were considered to be unclean. They They were ceremonially not part of the world. We saw that with someone who had leprosy, who had a skin disease, and people were like, we just don't want you around. Berenice would have been considered unclean because of the flux. And touching this rabbi would have maybe transferred some of that thought of, uh, well, she's not clean, and now the rabbi's not clean. And she had to be terrified of what this crowd would do, this mob of people. 
She doesn't want to say anything. Instead, she hears this. But he said to her, daughter, your trust has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is the only time we ever see Jesus call someone daughter. I wonder why he called her that. I really wonder what Jairus was thinking as he was thinking about his own daughter who was lying and dying a short distance away and Jesus is talking to this woman about being a daughter. Ladies, I wonder what it would be like for you to have Jesus look at you and say, daughter, daughter, your trust has made you well. Shalom, is what he says. Remember, according to the rules of this day, she wasn't allowed to be part of the the community. She wasn't allowed to be part of the synagogue. She wasn't allowed to be kind of inside the fold. But Jesus has not just given her back healing. He's given her her life back. He's given her shalom. She had come to Jesus with this mixture of fear and faith. Should I? Should I not? What is it? She is so desperate. She had nowhere to turn. And she was so tired of trying, arise from thy flux. But then Jesus does something amazing, not just the healing, but he forces her to go public with her belief. Right? She just was like, look, I believe this way. I'm going to touch and sneak away. And she's like, nope. I want your belief to go out there to everybody to see. She's already excluded from community. Maybe she's going to be punished for making the rabbi unclean. We, maybe we should pause and admit something. It's a scary thing sometimes to express that you really have faith in Jesus. Right? It takes a huge amount of trust. And it comes usually from an utter sense of of desperation. And moves through his day. He sees the words invading the environment. Two simple words. Jesus saves. Could be neon or black and white or a vibrant graffiti color. And if that man is like most people I know, including myself, he will wince at the message. One way or another, I believe we wince because we are embarrassed, and embarrassed for all kinds of reasons. Embarrassed because the words remind us of old-time religion and the sawdust trail and pulpit-pounding Bible Belt preachers. We wince because there is something in the name of Jesus that embarrasses us when it stands naked and alone like that, just Jesus, with no title to soften the blow. Jesus saves seems cringingly, painfully personal. Somebody named Jesus, of all names, saving somebody named whatever your name happens to be. It is something very personal written up in a place that is very public, like the names of lovers carved into the back of a park bench or an outhouse wall. And maybe, at a deeper level still, Jesus saves is embarrassing because if you can hear it through all your wincing, if any part at all of what it is trying to mean gets through, what it says to everybody who passes by, and most importantly and unforgivably what it says to you, is that you need to be saved. Rich, 
poor, young, old, religious, unreligious. What it says in effect to all of us is, you have no peace inside your skin. You are not happy, not whole. That is an unpardonable thing to say, whether it is true or false, but especially if it is true, to say to us what amounts to, you will never make it. You have not and will not, at least not without help. And what could be more presumptuous, more absurd, more pathetic than for some poor fool with paint to claim that the one to give that help is Jesus? Because, of course, behind the poor fool with the paint, there always stands, of course, the Prince of Fools himself. Blessed be he, in his own way, more presumptuous, more absurd and pathetic than anyone has managed to be since. say Jesus saves or trust Jesus it, it it's always kind of felt a little too cliched to me it seems very churchy it's like we would all come together and we would say that and then we go back to our real lives you know it's that kind of sense well, well brother just trust the Lord just trust Jesus okay everything got better amazingly arise from my flux but our perspective seems to change as it does in this story when we begin to realize just how desperate we are. And gosh, with all this time focused on the side story of Berenice, we, we, we've forgotten the main story. While he was still speaking, some come from the synagogue's rulers to say, your daughter died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Why trouble the teacher any further? Behind those words lies the belief that while the child was sick, Jesus could have healed her, but now that she is dead, there's no reason to bother. It's like, hurry, hurry, please, my daughter, please, hurry, hurry, come, I need you to help her. Ah, don't bother. People presume Jesus' power does not extend to the raising of the dead. But Jesus, disregarding the message being delivered, wow, says to the synagogue ruler, do not be afraid, only trust. You know, when Jesus looks at Jairus and says, do not be afraid, only trust, can you almost see him looking over Jairus' head at, at all of us here? Saying, I know that you think that she's dead. Do not be afraid, only trust. I wonder how often you've needed to hear that. How often I've needed to hear that. How often have we been in a situation where Jesus will not be hurried? And then we get to the point of, well, don't bother. Don't bother. Thanks. Some of you may be in this moment right now. Don't bother, Jesus. It's, it's over. And he did not allow anyone to follow with him except Rock, which is what he calls Peter, and James and John, the brother of James. And they come to the house of the synagogue ruler, and he sees the commotion and those weeping and wailing loudly. And entering, he says to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child did not die, but is sleeping. And they began to what? Doesn't, doesn't that seem an, an odd reaction for a crowd to have, you know, a group of people to have? That if someone walked into a funeral and said, hey, that person's not dead, and we're all like, ah, oh. <laughs> That just seems odd. 
But I want to remind you something. We've talked about this before. In this culture, they had a gig called professional mourner. This is a job you could do. And what would happen is you would come in and you would go to a funeral or you'd sit in the house with, the, with the, the, the family and you would weep and you would wail so loudly that the family members could express their own hearts and emotions without being embarrassed. Now, I used to think, well, that's kind of that's dumb. And, and the more I thought about it, I was like, well, I kind of wish we had some professional mourners around today. I've been at funerals where I've had this pressure to sit there in a suit and be somber, and I just wanted to scream out. And it would be great if somebody next to me was like going, ah, and I'd be like, ah, I can yell too. Everyone's yelling. These people are just getting paid for it. And this might help explain that quick switch from wailing to laughing. These people had done hundreds of these services of screaming and I, they're all the same. I mean, they, 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 they do their, their crying and their wailing, and at the end of the thing, they get their money. They knew death means death. But this is something that's never happened before. Some guy says, death doesn't mean death. And they're like, what? But Jesus, driving everyone out, takes the child's father and mother and those with him and goes into where the child was, and taking the child's hand, he says to her, Talitha Koum. Which is translated, Mark says for us, girl, I say to you, rise. Now you probably know this, that the, the New Testament uh, was not written in English. It was written in uh, the Greek language of the day. This is what Mark would be writing in. But there were some times when, when uh, there, we find some Aramaic, another language. This is probably the language that Jesus spoke the most. And so what Mark is doing so kindly for us is he's like, you know, I really wanted you to hear those words. So I just wrote down exactly what Jesus said, and then I translated it for you so that you would know if you didn't know Aramaic. And what Jesus is saying here is probably what this girl's parents had said to her every sunny morning of her life. Talitha Koum, little girl, get up. Time to rise. And immediately the girl rose up and began walking around for she was 12 years old. Why do we know that? For 12 years this girl had lived and then she had died and now she lives again. For 12 years this woman had bled and bled and bled. And immediately, they, this group, the family, the disciples, were exceedingly astonished. And he ordered them explicitly, no one should know this and give her something to eat. He turns to leave. He begins to walk out. He lowers his voice and says, now listen, I don't want you to say a word about this. Parents, don't say anything about it. James, John, Rock, especially you, Rock. You have a big mouth. Don't say anything about this. And he leaves. Now, what do we do with these two intertwined stories? Jairus had come to Jesus for a cure. He got a resurrection. He got more than he imagined. Berenice had come to Jesus for a hidden healing, but she got her faith commended and her life, she got shalom. There's a, an author I like, Tim Keller, and I like him a lot, and when I was reading something he said about this, he said it so much better than I could say it that I'm just going to say what he said. When you go to Jesus for help, you get from him far more than you had in mind, and you also end up giving to him far more than you expected to give. I would suspect that for some of you who have been coming to Jesus for a long time, you would agree with that. And for some of you who maybe have never 
put your faith in Christ, I just want you to really hear this. This is true, I think. When you go to Jesus for help, you get from him far more than you had in mind, but you also end up giving to him far more than you expected to give. We see that here. Jairus came thinking, I'm just going to trust Jesus enough to get him back to my house before my daughter dies. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to demand more from you. After Jairus' daughter had died in the midst of an apparent malpractice by this so-called Messiah, Jesus looked him right in the eyes and said, I need you to trust me. Jairus had not anticipated that. He had to end up trusting Jesus far more than he ever expected. Berenice had hoped to trust Jesus just enough to, to grab a quick touch of the hem. But Jesus demanded far more from her. After she was healed, he called her out publicly. She had to trust Jesus more than she expected. I want to, be, I want to begin to close us with this thought. I heard someone say this, and I've been thinking about it. Limited views mean limited lives. Limited views mean limited lives. And I don't know about you, but as we've walked through this book of Mark the last two months, doesn't it seem like people in every situation have such limited views of Jesus? And and to be honest, we're looking backwards. We know more than they did. But it just seems like their views of Jesus are so small. And instead of more and more, they keep expecting less and less. And Jesus seems to get frustrated by that. And Jairus and Berenice's views were expanded, however, because of their desperate need for restoration. And so maybe we need to be in a place of desperation for our view of Jesus to change. If we're really going to trust Jesus, maybe we need to be more desperate. And how often do we put our faith in just something that requires us to say, arise from thy flux. I was thinking about how, um, like, like, if I hadn't read it, I wouldn't have believed it, that one of the cures was to go find some cattle dung and fish out a little piece of grain, right? Doesn't that sound like the dumbest thing ever? And then I realized this, at least I'm doing something. At least I'm doing something more than trusting Jesus. At least I'm getting something done, even if it's that. How often do we put our trust in a piece of grain? Things that we can do, things that we can try, things that we can get established instead of trusting Jesus. And maybe our lives don't change because we're not desperate enough for his restoration. Now, I I don't think that Mark tells us these stories to promise something or imply something. He's not telling us these stories to promise to us that Jesus will always heal the child that dies or always the woman who suffers. In fact, next Sunday, we're going to see one of the most faithful, prayerful followers of Jesus Christ get beheaded. It's not a guarantee. So why does he tell us these stories? I was reading about a a man named G. Campbell Morgan, who was kind of considered one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. When his first daughter was born, he named her Gwenny. When she was five, she died unexpectedly. Campbell carried her loss with him every day of his life. Every day he thought about his daughter that had died. And 40 years later, he ended up in a position where he was preaching on this very passage. Imagine that. I want to read to you what he said as he preached on this text. I can hardly speak of this matter 
without becoming personal and reminiscent, remembering a time 40 years ago when my own first lassie lay at the point of death. I called out for him then, and he came, and he surely said to our troubled hearts, Fear not, believe only. He did not say, She shall be made whole. She was not made whole. On the earthly plane, she passed away into the life beyond. But he did say to her, Talitha kum, that is, little lamb, arise. But in her case, that did not mean stay on the earth level. It means that he needed her, and he took her to be with himself. And she has been with him for all these years as we measure time here, and I have missed her every day. But his word, believe only, has been the strength of all my passing years. When we fall at the feet of Jesus, we receive more than we thought, but we will give more than we expected. Believe these stories, these true stories, these stories offer us strength, strength to carry on and to trust Jesus. So let me ask you this, what's keeping you from reaching out and touching his hem? What are you fishing out instead of turning to? Where is it perhaps that you are right now where you are at a place of, don't bother? And this last question, where do you need to fall at his feet and trust Jesus? Will you pray with me about this? Let's take this to prayer with him. Jesus, I like to think that I trust you, but I spend so much of my life fishing out grain. It's hard to trust you. We want to trust you, though. In this moment, we carry to you this thing. It may be a, a situation, it may be a relationship, it may be a question, it may be our life, our soul. We want to know what it means to fall at your feet and to say, I do trust you. In this moment, we want to see you looking at us saying, do not be afraid. Only believe. We do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We move now to a moment of, of communion, the Lord's table. It, this is an act of trust, Jesus, right? When you come to a table like this and you uh, take the bread and you dip it into the cup, and the bread represents his body, the cup represents this new covenant in his blood. And, and when you do this, your, your act of faith here is to say, I am trusting that you died and rose again, and I'm trusting that you are enough for me, and I'm, trusting, I'm just trusting you with this act of faith. And I want to offer you something this morning as you come to the table. If this serves you, do it. If it does not serve you, do not do it. We placed on these tables a piece of garment of linen with some edges, some wings. If it helps you when you come to the table today to pause for a moment before you take the bread and 
dip it into the cup. If it helps you to grab the hem, just to offer a moment of trust or a prayer to him, I trust you, or I'm trusting you with this. If this is a helpful thing for you, grab the hem and then enjoy the table. The tables are open.